Welcome back to the Starbase Indie Podcast, where we talk to and about people who are inspired by Star Trek or science fiction to work towards hopeful futures in the real world. Hi, uh, I'm John Kennedy. I'm a uh, freelance writer and a tabletop game designer, and I've worked on games such as Star Trek Adventures, Power Rangers, uh, My Little Pony, World of Darkness, and a whole lot of others. So how did you get into game design? You know, it's funny, like, it's funny to say that you've always wanted to do something because like I've if you ask my mom I'm like the most indecisive person on the planet because you know I wanted to be an engineer but I'm really bad at math so it's a good thing I'm not an engineer um I have a degree in history and you know I work at Indian Circle Society so that's pretty cool but um it's just funny because I've always loved gaming and it was one of my first outlets uh as a, a teenager and um like, my sisters were older than me, so they were into, like, you know, like, when they were playing, like, softball and soccer, I was still in elementary school. And gaming with my friends was kind of, like, the few ways that I could go out and socialize. And my mom, who's a teacher, totally supported it. Um, and so I was just like, hey, you know, I really love playing D&D. Man, if only someday I could work on it. And when I was in college, um, I just kind of, I, I chased down the rabbit hole and I answered an ad that someone had posted on RPG.net looking for a writer. And I had done like some short stories by that time, um, mostly for classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I loved writing, but it, that was my first, you know, like adventure into game design. And then I've been doing it ever since. Um, I started working in 2005. So you, what sort of games have you designed? You said RPGs, but are there different types Oh yeah, like um, I'm trying to think of where to start. Uh, I've worked on a lot of like the main commercial ones. Like I've worked on Star Trek Adventures, and I've mm-hmm. been on the line since the beginning. Um, it's funny because I was actually visiting uh, Chris Birch, uh, who uh, runs Modiphius. He lives out in London, and I was out visiting him. And um, in the middle of playing a board game, and um, I can't remember what game we were playing honestly, because that's how exciting the news was. He just starts like jumping and flailing. And I'm like, oh, what's what's up? Is everything all right? And he shows me his phone, and he had just gotten the um, the approval from uh, CBS to get Star Trek. And so, that's great. Worked on that. Um, I worked on World of Darkness. Huge fan of World of Darkness. Uh, you know, Vampire the Masquerade and all that. And then also, I've worked on a lot of indie games, like smaller games that um, the mechanics might be a little out there to some of the more traditional role playing games. Um, most recently, I published a game called Stage Terrorism, which is a tribute to Venture Brothers. And I got the best, not quite compliment from Doc Hammer, who wrote Venture Brothers. Um, and uh, also worked on board games. Um, I worked on Myth, when Myth was still around. And yeah, I've kind of done a little bit of everything over the years. So so what was the not quite a compliment? I'm trying to remember it. Like, uh, um, my business partner, Mike, went out to go see him. And he handed him a copy of our book and he flipped through it and he looked him in the eye and said, yeah, it's pretty good. I would have done better. And <laughs> it's just awesome because if you know Doc Hammer's sense of humor, that is the perfect, like, it's, it, it sounds like an insult, but at the same time, it's like, oh, Doc Hammer says he could write it better than me. And he's right. But it's, it's like, oh my God, that's awesome. Because now I have a cool story to tell people. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So some of the games that you have designed have been in existing universes and some of them have been in your own universe and independent games. Which one do you like better? Oh man, that, that is a super hard question. Um, so I was talking with my friend Alan the other day 
and Alan, um, he's the one who does like Tiny Dungeon and a host of other games. And Alan's a tremendous game designer. And he asked me, he asked me the same question. He said, hey, so you do a lot of really great indie work, but you're always chasing down these big contracts, you know, like what, what is one half of the other? And really, I just like designing games, no matter what they are. And, but I will admit, getting to work on Star Trek is very much a dream comes true for me because so my mom is an old school Trekkie. She watched it when it was first on the air. And um, when I was little, she worked two jobs and she would get back at like 10 o'clock and I would be the, the four year old who would sneak out of their bed, excited that mom was home and mom missed me during the day. So she, you know, she wanted to catch up even though she was tired and we'd watch the syndicated reruns of next generation and getting to like actually write about the card and Riker and all of the characters and getting to fill in gaps in the lore and write about the Dominion War or, you know, um, getting to explore whole new sections of the galaxy. That is so cool that I can't really pass it up. So I love to design stuff on my own because that's fun. I mean, I got to write a game that's, you know, a tribute to Venture Brothers, which is one of my all time favorite cartoons. And I've also got to work on like really fun concepts with people like Heck and Good Doggos which is a game about playing a dog. It's a lot of fun. But I'm getting to work on games like... to arrive. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. Oh, cool. Um, it, it, I love that. I, working with Brandon and Matthew was just awesome. Um, they're really good people. Um, and the fact that that always makes me laugh is that the game engine for Heckin' Good Doggos was originally used for their World War I uh, gothic horror game. <laughs> So when we were coming up with new ways to use the mechanics, it's like, hmm, so this is a game about playing as dogs. So let's remove all the murder your teammate rules, because that's not cool. Um, that's not the game we're making. And every time we went back to the, 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 the source game for references, it's like, okay, we want the dog to climb up the wall. And no, he's not going to shoot the, at the other dog. <laughs> and just stripping out all the, the grotesque you know, horror of World War I. And replacing it with like the super lighthearted funness of being a dog, it, it just makes me smile. And we had a lot of just really funny jokes going through the writer's room. So talk a little bit about that process where you say you're taking the game mechanic out of a game about World War One and turning it into a game about being a dog. So how does that work? It's actually just like any other project. Um, I've worked with so many people over the years and a phrase, which I'm kind of stealing from um, Steffi Devon, who... Uh, I've worked with on Stargate. Um, it's kind of just called like passing the ball, where you're. It all starts with one idea, and this is actually how a million of these tiny games like live or dies with that one idea. And you all sit around, and you're all just like you know talking game design. You know, like just you're you're just being like, oh, it's a cool idea. You could do this idea this way. You could do this idea that way, and it just builds from there. And once you get to that second stage, or like once we decided, no, we're we're not just going to joke about heck and good doggos. We're going to make heckin' good doggos. Then you just get to that point where it's like, oh, well, we want to use the OnePlus system. But, you know, that's got, like, rules for going insane and rules for what if your body bursts apart and there's claws and tentacles everywhere. And, you know, that's not fun for a dog game because we wanted to make a game that was for all ages. And you don't want to explain to, like, your seven-year-old that it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you're playing the family pet? Well, family pet's dead because that's gruesome and horrific and just mean to the kid. Uh, so we have to sit down and it's like, okay, well, what would we do differently? If we yank out these rules, we're going to leave a void. How do we fix them? And it usually one person comes up with like the base of the rules, like what it's going to be like. 
And then we just build from there where it's like, hey, you could do it this way or hey, don't do it this way. And it, it's a, it's it's weird to describe it as both like a short process, but also a long process, because sometimes you just you're just really jamming. And like I've worked with Alan and Alan once designed a uh, 20,000 word RPG in one day. And it was a brilliant RPG. Um, and it's Tomb Punk, which is his game that he's got uh, taking the market right now. And just the fact that just some people, it just clicks and boom, you've got this piece of art you can show off to people. And then you've got me where I've had one game where I've been working on it for seven years and I'm nowhere near done. Even though I, I work on it a lot, I just keep tearing it apart. Um, but yeah, you just work with your friends and that's kind of like the secret to success. Because when you're working with your friends, there's not really competition. You're not trying to one up each other. It's more like, hey, let's do this really cool idea. And then boom, the more minds you have at the table, is, and especially the more like diverse the minds are, like just magic happens. Um, and I've never really been a good cook. Um, you ask anybody that I cook for, I'm just an okay cook where I can make certain things well, but not great as it's been described. So if you come over to my place and you eat my lasagna, you'll be like, no, that's a good lasagna. It's good. It's not really memorable. But that's a good lasagna. But whenever I collaborate with others, I can suddenly take the most average sounding idea, which is you're playing RPG and you're a dog in the RPG. And then, boom, we have, um, I think it's six or seven alternate settings for, for heck and good doggos. You could play a doggo in um, like a post-apocalyptic wasteland, in space, um, in ye old fantasy hounds, which um, uh, my friend Allison wrote up. Um, it, it's, yeah, so... Really, it's just like it's all about the people that you work with. And I've been incredibly fortunate and really blessed to work with some of the best people. So let's see. Um, you answered some of my questions and I've got to reorder things a little bit. That is OK. Um, so when you're creating a universe for a game, how is that different from, say, world building for just written fiction? Oh, man. Like you would think it would be easier because there's almost no rules. but gamers will notice a lack of internal consistency like no one else like you've probably noticed like especially in the geek sphere where like the latest trailer for an mcu movie comes out and everybody's like written like graduate level theses on what 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 was in the trailer and what wasn't in the trailer so even when it comes to games of like you know rolling the pretty math rocks aka dice you still get like people where if you have like, you know, a, a gap in the lore or a gap in the rules, people will notice it pretty quickly. And so it can be really challenging, even if it's just your idea. And as you start to develop your idea, suddenly there's things that you don't even think of. Like um, over one weekend, I created this small little game um, called Treebound, which is all about a fantasy world, but it's uh, set in gigantic trees um horrific monsters inhabit the surface of the world and and the survivors um pretty much escaped these enormous trees that uh, the mother god has created out of the ground and they're the size of mountains so there are literal tree cities that are built onto the branches and it was a fun idea and i did it because i wanted to just make it for um green ronin's partnership program and it was like yeah i've got this cool idea and i'll write it out but as I'm world building, suddenly I'm like, okay, cool. Hey, what happens if it rains? Because these are giant trees. What if it rains on a tree? And then as I'm, you know, trying to figure out how weather works for, you know, colossal trees, um, a friend of mine said, hey, what if a leaf falls? 
And I'm like, oh, well, it falls to the ground. They go, no, these are giant trees, right? So these leaves weigh like tons. Won't that kill people? <laughs> like, it, like if it lands on the branch? And I'm like, oh no, my fantasy world, it has huge gaps in logic. How do I explain that people aren't just crushed by falling leaves every day? Um, so, it, it, but that's part of the fun. I mean, in any other field of work, like if someone was like a dentist or an IT professional, or um, if they ran a shop, if you walked up to them and said, oh, what are you thinking about? And they said, oh, I'm thinking about in this fantasy world I'm designing, what if like tree spiders were like dogs and people kept them as pets? People would probably stare at you really weird and be like, uh, that's a really weird idea. Uh, get back to work. But in game design, if people would be like, oh, that sounds really cool. Well, why why are the spiders dogs? I mean, are they friendly? Are there different breeds of them? Um, so it, it can be really challenging, but it's just like writing a novel where sometimes you uncover huge problems in the, the mythos that you're building for this world, and then you get to solve it. And hopefully the audience enjoys it. It seems like for games, you interact with the world or your players interact with the world in unpredictable ways. And so you have to have a different, um, you're not in control of everything, of all of the ways the characters interact with the world, where in, in a novel, you only have to solve the problems you're, that promote your plot, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, yeah, go ahead. Well, no, it's just like um, with novels, you present the story to the audience and they read it and then they go from there. But in a game, like I've had people walk up to me and be like, hey, so I played the game set in the world you designed and we totally went off the rails. And just like at Gen Con one year, I'm running an adventure for a game that I worked on called Part-Time Gods. And it was set in this skyscraper that's been taken over by um, an ancient Greek deity. And the players, you know, because they've all got different powers and one of them, they can kind of fly. And they were like, hey, why do we have to fight our way up through the skyscraper? I can literally fly. I can walk on clouds. Why can't I just break a window and go to the end, like the end fight right now? And I admit, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> and they almost took a, what was supposed to be a four-hour adventure to a 20-minute excursion. I'm like, oh, no, I have to just chuck the adventure now. And uh, it can be challenging because I, I, I view it as basically I'm providing, like, the programming, but it's someone else's uh, computer that's going to be running the, the simulation, so to speak. And... I'll never be able to think of every contingency that a group of dedicated gamers will come up with. And I hope that's kind of the fun on their part too, where I hope that they're sitting around going, oh man, we, we're very clever. We figured out how to get around the, we didn't have to fight any monsters. We just skipped straight to the end. And it's like, no, you should be rewarded for that. That's pretty smart. That's really good problem solving. It's frustrating for me, but that was brilliant on their part. So what makes for a good setting for a game or a good universe for a game? Oh man. Super hard question. Um, what makes for a good setting of a game? I think the ability to draw in the player. Like like the game I just talked about, Treebound. Fun setting, fun sounding setting. But if I tried to pitch that to you, would you want to play in it? Like, uh, Does that sound like something that you would play in? Uh, <laughs> let's see. I get my brain out of I don't have any time left over for the next month and a half. Um, and it does seem like it could be an interesting setting to explore. But if it doesn't grab you right away, it might just be, it's, it's really hard. It's a hard sell. Because it's like, you know, for a lot of people, like gaming is their release. It's what they do to relax on the weekend. Mm -hmm. But if you've like ever waited like a whole week to do something fun, 
sometimes you really just want to do the things that you know is fun. Like I could say, hey, let's go play this game where there's giant trees and like, you know, house sized birds everywhere. And it's like, yeah, but maybe I just really want to play D&D like regular generic setting D&D with elves, dwarves, dragonborn. Maybe that's my jam. So the trick is for designing a role playing setting is to make sure that it's accessible, that people would have fun playing it. And then it would actually excite them to play it. Um, and that's a great thing about how like D&D 5th edition has been for the last seven or eight years where everybody is discovering that it's a really easy game for them to learn. It's an easy game for them to play. And for a lot of us who are getting older, like when I was in my 20s, I could game to like I could start at like 7 p.m. and end at 5 a.m. and have a blast the entire time. And now that I've gotten older, it's like, okay, guys, it's like 11 p.m. and I've got a half hour drive home. Maybe we should wrap it up at this point. So just the believability of the setting and if it can make people feel excited to play it. And there are some games which, you know, they're more exciting to read or to think about playing. But sometimes they're just unpractical to play. Like one of my favorite games is Fiasco, which is a really great game to introduce to people. And you pretty much you you're doing a um, kind of like a short interactive play where you're building up to the fiasco, which is where like you know the 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 peak of all the tension is, and you play out like you know the the denouement afterwards. But that's a hard game to pitch to people too, because some it's a game that relies a lot a lot of improv and uh, coming up with stories like on the spot. And that can be challenging for players, especially newer players. It's definitely a different experience learning a new game versus playing an old comfortable game. Oh, yeah. So you mentioned that when you were working in the Star Trek universe, you got to add some pieces to the lore and fill in some gaps in the lore. What is your favorite sort of piece of lore that you've contributed to the Star Trek canon? Oh, man. So I've kind of become known as like the, the history person where like they're like uh, a lot of the writers we have on our team are just awesome and we've been making some really good books um for me i really love exploring the history of the star trek universe mm -hmm. and most recently the thing that excites me the most is i got to write um the history of how starfleet came to be um so i actually got to explore like elements of the the world war three and um how the original the first starfleet was developed going all the way through to the 25th century. And for me, that's fun. Like as a historian, I love going through, you know, primary sources. I love flipping through books and combing through wikis and reading other books. And like, I just love it. It's in the, in the Utopia Planitia book, which just came out. And I just really enjoy writing about history. I mean, I think writing about Star Trek is just more fun because it's inherently heroic and, mm -hmm. Like, even at its darkest times, like, you know, the World War III was about 50 years long in the Star Trek universe. And it came after, like, the eugenics wars and everything. So, but it ends positively because we get Starfleet and we get the Federation. And getting to explore that part of the galaxy and that part of history and getting to just introduce it to new people who might not be aware of all that, of all the stuff that came before. And where else can I say, hey, um, you know, what are you doing tonight? Oh, um, I'm writing up uh, about the Andorian Navy and the Andorian Imperial Fleet. You know, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity to get to do that. So when you're writing these pieces, is there an approval process? 
Is there, you know, does this Roddenberry or Paramount get to approve what you're putting together? How does it get baked into the canon? Uh, it, there's a long approval process. And if you, if there's a literal like cutting room floor, you would see millions of words, which we've all had trimmed. Um, it goes from like from me to Jim Johnson, who's the current like line manager for uh, Star Trek, for Star Trek Adventures. Um, he then gives it a look through. He edits it. He approves it. It goes up to our um, our Paramount liaison, who who goes through it again, and then uh, the script itself then gets reviewed uh, by other people at Paramount to make sure it's consistent with the lore and that we don't do anything that's really silly. Um, uh, it's funny because when I when we first started working on Star Trek Adventures, um, they gave us this list of things which we absolutely cannot do. And one of them was uh, we cannot have Picard just murder someone in cold blood. And that sounded really important to, to just read. And it's like, why would we do that? That's awful. Picard wouldn't just murder someone. But it's, it's just kind of funny that the, they wanted to like head it off at the pass and be like, please don't turn a beloved character into a murderer. That would not be cool. We will not accept that. And sometimes you just you lose beloved chapters where we've had stuff that got submitted and then they were like, hey, you can't do this or you can't do that. And the reasons can be like there's a million reasons. Um, I actually accidentally guessed the plot to um, the first season of Discovery based on what they uh, rejected from one of our drafts because they uh, this is before Discovery's even aired. And they said, yeah, uh, no, we can't do anything with the mirror universe. No, don't mention the mirror universe at all. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Why not? And we basically got a never you mind, don't ask. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm like, oh, okay. And then as we get to like the, the second half of the first season of Discovery, it's like, I knew it. I knew it was Mirror Universe. <laughs> so testing a game is an important part of the process. And maybe this is, you said earlier that writing a game is both short and long. And I wondered if you were kind of alluding to testing there. Talk a little about the testing, why it's important, some of the problems it uncovers. So I know it sounds kind of like, you know, like a very obvious thing that like, yes, of course you should test the game before it goes out the door. But you remember how I mentioned earlier how players can just do things you don't expect. Mm -hmm. um, we were um, showing off, I want to say it was part-time gods at a different convention and the players are having fun. And then a player just looks at me and is like, okay, well, I'm going to climb up the side of that building. How do I do that? And then I had to stop and be like, oh, when I designed these rules, I didn't consider climbing, which is an everyday action. But when you think about like epic, you know, super heroics and stuff like that, you don't really stop to think, how does Captain America climb up the side of a building without like stairs or something? And that's why like, you know, like testing is so important because you never want to have a game grind to a halt because a lot like amusement park rides or a lot like other things, if the game ever stops for whatever reason, you know, enjoyment stops, um, players, you know, their attention spans can drift. And also it doesn't really look good if the game breaks because the GM has to figure out how you climb hand over hand up a wall. Um, so it can take a while. And it's not like you need like an in-depth, you know, playtesting team of a thousand people. Although that's, uh, that certainly helps. Um, sometimes you just really need to sit down with your friends. And um, we kind of joke that it's called like the boot camp scenario, where in order for someone to truly understand the game system, you have to run these a series of pre-planned encounters where um, if someone's, if you're trying to figure out what your engine can do, 
players have to like they go into a bar they have to talk to the bartender they have to um engage in a bit of diplomacy to learn about like you know a clue the clue takes them into an alley they have to climb over a fence they climb over the fence but there's giant rats they have to fight so they have to fight the rats and this all shows you what your system is good at and what your system is not good at and it's hard to find a system that excels at everything because a lot of settings a lot of systems you know they're 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 really finely focused um like there's one game that I played at um, Gen Con where, um, man, I'm blanking on the name, but essentially you are um, the survivors of indigenous tribe in the United States. And you're trying to recreate um, the creation myths and stories of the founding of your tribe. And you get to actually act like you, you roll dice and act out like you fight the giant mountain god and you, you arm wrestle him in order to earn this great trophy. And that game is really wonderful to play. and It's a wonderful system. But if you have players who want to sit down and just go all murder hobo and they just want to go and kill a bunch of goblins, that's not the right game for you. And that's totally okay. Because like I said earlier, if you wait all week to do something fun and you have a particular idea of what you want to do that's fun, you you go for, you know, we go for our, our comforts. Um, and so... Yeah, it's it's with testing a game, it's realizing what you want the engine to do, realizing what the point of the engine is. And then also, and this is probably the biggest part that might turn off like, you know, a lot of like game designers, expect failure. Like uh, I can't remember all the times when I've had a game engine just sputter and die. Um it, it's it's hard. Like everybody wants to be the next D&D. I know I've created games and I've been like this is brilliant. It's wonderful. This is mind-blowingly original it's so wonderful man they're going to give me an any right now and then like day two of testing i'm like well put that in the bin <laughs> let's start over with a new game i just basically invented chess again but it's not as good as chess and it'll happen like you'll go through ideas you know like crazy and sometimes you might also have like what you think is like a brilliant game and it's wonderful and it's a uh, it's hard to sell to people um Stage terrorism, which I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. I love the setting. I love the rules that Mike came up with. It's a really fun game. And I believe we sold 16 copies of Gen Con, which didn't quite meet what we needed to cover our print run. But, it, you know, hopefully those people who bought it, they really enjoy it. So in addition to being a game designer, you are also a writer and a comedian. Each of those is sort of a different angle on creativity. So talk a little bit about how they play together in your work and in your life. So I've been working on novels for years and I was uh, telling my partner that this is going to like next year is going to be the year I actually finished the novel I've been working on. And I love writing like all things. And I especially love dialogue um, and writing like I have a lot of friends who they show up to Incon. They're like, hey, this is the book I'm releasing. I wrote it last year. And I'm always so envious because I've just been working in 18 years with, oh, I have to write 50,000 words about the founding of the Federation. Okay, cool. I will work within that limit. And then they'll be like, hey, I wrote 200,000 words and I have this whole novel, like start to finish. And it's wonderful. And I, I really want to like break out of my comfort zone. And I really want to take some of these ideas that I've been working on and actually like get them out into the world. Um. And I just, like I said, I love dialogue. It's, I, I don't think I'm really good at writing plays or, you know, I mean, I, I've written a few comic book scripts, which are pretty good, but I just love how people talk to each other because 
I guess just language fascinates me where turns of phrase, inflections, uh, body language, um, things that have double meanings, you know, uh, people's moods when they're talking to other people, you know, someone's dialogue where they're, when they're flirting with someone, when they're intimidating someone, when they're scared of someone. And I've just always been a fan. And my mom, um, she remembers how I used to just like steal computer copier paper from school. And I would just write these really awful scripts. Um, and she told me that if I ever release a comic about laser man who can shoot lasers, because apparently, <laughs> you know, 10 year old me wasn't really big on subtlety. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I just, I, it, it, it helps. And there have been times when I've used writing to kind of deal with serious issues. Like when mom, one of my grandmothers died in um, 2008 and it was really, it was really hard. She suffered from dementia towards the end. We watched her decline um, watching to someone who helped raise me because my mom worked so many jobs and it was very difficult for me. And um, I had to go back to school because I had an exam the next day and I ended up not sleeping. But what I did do was I wrote a short story and that story, it was a horror story and it covered a lot of my fears and a lot of the things that were making me sad. And I finished it at like 6 a.m. And then I'm like, okay, I've not slept, but the exam is in two hours. So I went and I got coffee and uh, eggs at the Triple X Diner, which is up the street from me. And I just kept thinking how that story helped me just vent all the negative energy. And I loved how it impacted me in a moment when I needed it. And that was a really rough day because I, after I got out of the exam, I told my mom, I like, yeah, I think I did pretty well, all things considered. And she let me know my grandmother had passed during the exam. Um, but just seeing how writing affects people. And it's always like been a great source of pride for me where I admit I'm one of those writers where every so often I'll be like, ooh, what's the Amazon reviews for this book doing? And I always tell myself, no, we're not going to get upset if there are bad reviews. And then I'll be like, a three-star review? Well, that's not a one-star. What did they like about it? And I admit, you know, my, my ego takes a bruising, and I really need to check that and be more humble about it. Um, and uh, you asked about what it's like also being a comedian. I started doing stand-up on a dare um uh, i forget which comedy shop it was in town i want to say it was morty's they had an open mic night and um the first time it was because they had no no open micers that night and we were all waiting for um the act to, to come out and i was like okay i'll go up there and i told this really dumb story about um it was a time when i was um low-key mugged <laughs> in broad ripple and I had the audience laughing and I've kind of always been a little like not quite a class clown, but I realized that from an early age, the school bullies weren't picking on me as much if I was making them laugh. And I also love seeing my mom laugh where she worked so hard for all of us. And she's like my biggest cheerleader and being able to just make her like, just lose it. We're just laughing and like, you know, like almost crying at times either because I've made the dog talk in a funny accent or I've come up with like a clever pun at the right moment, you know, makes me smile and makes me feel good knowing that I've made other people feel good. And I wouldn't say that I'm like the best comedian. Um, 
I did all right. Like I, I just mainly did like open mics, but I'd like to think that I'm like consistently funny. Although I would say that my my type of comedy is better understood in person than it is through the internet, where it's not that I'm like saying like really crass or vulgar things because I don't really like that level of comedy, but it's really more of a fact that it's like um, like if I'm saying something and I'm trying to like there's a funny like accent or just like you know it, it, timing like comedic timing is really big. You have the funniest joke in the world, but if you just butcher the timing, it just lands just so horribly. And so I'd say that I'm, I'm much funnier in person. So you have been to Starbase Indy several times as an attendee. Mm -hmm. what, what is it that you like about Starbase Indy? Oh, man, it is. So I'm going to say this in a really nice way. And I mean, it, it, this is a nice way. I love small conventions where it feels like home. I've been to Dragon Con, I've been to Gen Con, I've been to all a lot of the big conventions. I've walked around with like 75,000 people in the hallways and it's very impersonal and you might see a friend that you recognize and it's like, oh, hey, how you doing? Goodbye. And something that I get out of Starbase Indy that I don't get out of other conventions is I see friends and family and they pretty are much our family at this point. Every convention or every Starbase Indie that I've gone to, it's always like, oh, hey, there's Ian. I went to school with Ian. Ian, what's up? How's your life doing? How are your parents? And then seeing like my friend Jimmy walk around the corner, be like, Jimmy, I haven't seen you in years. How's little JJ? And it's not just the socialization either. Like, you know, having been to like those big 500 person panels at Dragon Con, where it's like, oh, cool. We get to see the Ant-Man trailer before other people. And that's it's fun. But you don't really interact with people at those conventions, and you definitely don't interact with the guests. And getting to sit back and listen to a panel, and the panel could be pretty much about anything, but if it's a panel you're really into, then you get to sit there and, like, I think one of my all-time favorite panels that that I, I, I think about was one that was actually about, like, the mechanics of time travel. And I remember it kept blowing my mind. Just because the the scientists that were involved, they all had like uh, on the panel, they all had like these degrees in like physics and everything. And I'm a liberal arts major. So I'm like, oh, yes, yes. Parallax. Mm, Green Lantern villain, right? Oh, no. Parallax distance. What's that? And <laughs> trying to sit there and, and grok what they're saying. But none of the none of the guests are ever rude. In fact, they're really excited to share it with you. And one of the best parts about Starbase Indy is if they have time and, and the, the, the room they're scheduled, you can hang out outside of the room and chat with them afterwards. And getting to see people with so much passion who come to Starbase Indy and they want to share it with others, it, it's, it's really cool. And that's what I like about it. And it's, it's, I think, you know, just like other conventions of its size, I always get really sad when it's over. And it's not because I'm not walking out of there with bags upon bags of swag. And I'm not walking out of there with like 10 celebrity signatures. I'm sad because it's like, oh man, that was so nice and pleasant. And it was fun. And it wasn't like, oh, we have to be a triple A, five star, 100% experience for all attendees or we fail. It's like, hey, we're here to have fun. Like, you know, we're here to, to organize a convention where we're all going to have fun. We hope you have fun too. And the vibe that I've gotten from it is it's like, yeah, we're going to run a really good convention. And, and Starbase Indy does. And, you know, so 
whenever I tell people who like they're nervous about going to Gen Con for the first time, because Gen Con super big, super huge, and these days you need like a, a game plan for just navigating the convention. I really like the fact that Starbase Indie is accessible and it really like you know like I said for someone like me who's been going to conventions since they were eighteen, it's it's nice, it's fun, it's it's I guess if I had to describe it any other way, it's like sitting down and you know having like your favorite meal where it might not be you know steak tartare with quail egg on it, but it's like no this is like you know like my favorite casserole or this is like you know food from my favorite restaurant. I'm going to sit down with my friends. I'm going to have a lot of fun. And then I'm going to count the minutes till next year. Yeah, we're, we're definitely not overwhelming in the way that Gen Con or Dragon Con or, yeah, like 75,000 people is never really. <laughs> we're not going to get there. 1,000 people might be nice, but, you know, give it time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so what are you working on next? Um, I am working on My Little Pony for Renegade Studios, which is uh, has licenses from Hasbro. Um, it's a lo lot of fun getting to meet the fans. And my sister, who is uh, a literal rocket scientist, um, she loves My Little Pony. And when I told her about it, she just went nuts. And it's really cool getting to interact with the fans and learning a lot about the world where I, I watched the cartoon, but I watched it with kids around. And it's, I like the cartoon. Um, it, it's a lot of fun. And getting to learn new aspects about the lore and then finding people where, like, I think they're almost, like, afraid to mention that they like My Little Pony because they're worried they're getting made fun of. But having their eyes just get so wide and be like, yes, you're working on a My Little Pony RPG. I love My Little Pony. And it, it's really cool. And then I just finished um, the time travel book for Power Rangers um, called A Jump in Time. And getting to write about my favorite Power Rangers and monsters and any book where afterwards, you know, I feel like my internal nerd would be excited to see this book is always so much fun. And then uh, I've got some stuff which I can't really talk about from Star Trek, but we've got some really cool books coming on the pipe for 23. Um, like we've got some really cool ideas that are coming. And we just released uh, Utopia Planitia, which is a, um, a book on starships in Star Trek Adventures. And a cool thing about that book is we got to partner with the, the crew from um, Star Trek Online. And I felt like such a nerd in our writers' meetings because I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I used to play the game. So you got any of those, like, like code packs lying around, you know, in case someone wants to reopen their ship, you know, and <laughs> see how their sovereign class is doing. And, yeah, so I, I'm really happy where, because I've had some health issues recently, and the fact that I've been able to still get to work on some of the things that I love. I mean, if 10-year-old me could see where I am now, they might be a little daunted to be like, oh, you've Crohn's disease. I don't know what that is, but that sounds bad. But 10-year-old me would be like, oh, you get to work on My Little Pony and Power Rangers and Star Trek? Well, hey, the future's got to be great. Yeah, it does seem like a, a, a balance, <laughs> ups and downs, <laughs> those two mm -hmm. things. So where can people find you online? So uh, I would say it's easy to find me on Facebook, but with a name like John Kennedy, it's really hard to find me on Facebook. But if you see someone with like a talking dog avatar, it's probably me. Um, and then you can find me on Twitter over at um, JK Myth, um, which is a screen name I've had for a billion, billion years. And then I'm currently like working on like my, my own like like uh, professional page for Facebook, um, just so that like, it's easier for fan engagement. Because I love talking to all my fans 
but sometimes it can be a little overwhelming when like you know 50 people comment on a post and they don't all agree and then i'm juggling like day job responsibilities while also trying to be like the referee trying to make people you know behave as best they can on the internet but you can find me at yeah um uh, on twitter on facebook and then i really wish that i had a stronger presence on like tiktok but i don't really know if people really want to see me doing silly dances on tiktok yeah i haven't i haven't waded into tiktok yet although i i see that some of our guests this year have uh are starting to play with it i know that trek talk is getting getting to be a, a thing so i'm afraid of having to learn it <laughs> it's so funny because when i was originally a communications major because like i said i couldn't figure out what i wanted to be when i grew up and then we were learning things like oh well, if you ever have to help manage like a uhf station and it's like oh cool then learning how to manage a um industrial cassette tape manager that's going to be so useful in the future and now we're all walking around with like supercomputers in our pockets that can make a video on demand right then and there it's interesting how technology is shaping up yeah when i was in college at ball state in the uh late 80s early 90s they were still physically cutting tape apart to do you know in the in the telecommunications department to do edits and that's that's not how it works anymore yeah so. my skills of splicing gel tape together uh <laughs> so useful in this day and age right right yeah well the future's on the way well thanks so much for taking time to talk to me tonight i really appreciate it yeah no i love the this was wonderful Thanks for listening to the Starbase Indie Podcast. To find more information about our live event this November, check us out at starbaseindie.org or on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. See you on the Starbase.